Good morning, welcome to the show. Uh, before we meet uh, the panel here, raring to go. Before we meet them, let's have a look at the front pages of the papers. So the Sunday Times is leading with raid on Bailey Flack to find new DNA evidence. I like. I think I have some kind of blockage about this. I keep thinking, is there anything more to say about Ian Bailey? But papers, plenty more to say about Ian Bailey today. I don't know how much of it is new. So the thing is, they did that raid to find new DNA, but they. As far as I can figure out, they've no DNA to compare it to because they have DNA from the scene, which he, in the words here, trampled all over anyway uh, when he came along as a journalist. They have no DNA from the actual block or the brick that they, they, they there's some suggestion they would get DNA out of that through new uh, methodology. I think Jim Sheridan in the Sunday Independent calls that getting blood from a stone, literally. So they're looking for a new DNA in Ian Bailey, but I don't know to compare to what. Uh, the Sunday Independent, Taoiseach wants RTE to be paid for by the Exchequer. Coalition still divided on the issue. So Leo Varadkar seems to, uh, he's in favour of abolishing the TV licence and direct Exchequer funding. Um, the Irish Mail on Sunday uh, and I'll read this under advisement RT accused of quotes cooking the books so that is Neve Smith uh, Fianna Fáil TD uh, is using that uh, terminology um, and uh, the Business Post has a poll and they are their headline on that is Sinn Féin poll crisis four years of gains wiped out we'll come back and look at that properly uh, the Sunday World Bailey's Mystery Diaries. We find private papers and journals on front seat of car days before cops raided home for clues to Sophie murder is their headline. Um, the Mur now it's keynote. So they're saying former Celtic boss Neil Lennon has met FAI cheaps, dashing fans' hopes of Roy Keane for Ireland manager. So Lennon is tipped to replace Stephen Kenny. Lee Carsley reportedly no longer interested in the job. And the Sun on Sunday. So now, follow this. Strictly winner Ellie Leach's ex has told of his regret of breaking her heart with a drunken snog in a nightclub. Reagan Petman, 22, said, I hurt her and I broke her heart. I'm not proud of it. Ellie, 22, is now with Bobby Brazier. And Regan, her ex who broke her heart, says, if she's happy with Bobby, then I, I'm happy for her. Can you imagine if when you were, I don't know, 21, 22, and the carry on, we were all getting up to and the messing. And if you had to be on the front page of the sun explaining who got off with who in a nightclub and how you're regretting it. Anyway, our panel today, Suzanne Lynch, Associate Editor of Political Europe. Elaine Garrity is Managing Director of Ardmore and Troy Studios. Ashling Maloney is a political correspondent with the Irish Daily Mail. And Colm O'Gorman is a human rights campaigner. Good morning, everybody. Morning. Um, Ashling, RTE... Uh, will we start with the front page of the Sunday Independent? Everyone's picked this. So uh, the Hugh O'Connell saying Taoiseach wants RTE to be paid for by the Exchequer and, and there's other other bits and pieces in that story as well. Indeed. And I suppose the uh, this is where this the whole controversy and saga around what's coming out from RTE and we saw again this week uh, the report into the Toy Show Toy Show the Musical this is where I suppose the rubber really meets the road where the coalition have to decide how they're going to um, pick a new funding model going forward to ensure I suppose the, the future of RTE we know that they have been uh, pr- given a preliminary let's say bail 
bailout of over 50 million euro for 2024 to stay afloat. But beyond that, a new funding model uh, needs to be decided. Um, and today we have the Taoiseach saying um, and indications there that he would prefer exchequer funding. Although kind of further down the article, I think the sense is that um, if the cabinet were to kind of go to butt heads over this, um, um, the leader of Fianna Fáil, the Tánaiste, Michal Martin, has expressed his dislike of the exchequer funding model. So I think the sense is if, if there were to butt heads about that, that the Taoiseach would concede and go for what's being touted as this kind of a broadcast charge that would go through revenue and would be applied on every household. And because I suppose there's less chance of evasion, if revenue are collecting it, it could be less than €160. Euro. So um, it's interesting because... So the that's te- the big picture, right? That's the big picture here going on. And yes. it feels sometimes like, no, not at the moment. I think some politicians are looking forward to getting this back in front of committee at the moment. But mm-hmm. it does feel sometimes as if the politicians are trying to move this on all the time. But somehow it, it doesn't go away. The, it, yeah. the, the story but I think keeps... Like, what you're saying there, I think... Or do you haven't really helped themselves in that regard? We thought these reports, we were expecting these reports to come before Christmas. And I think I know of the people I've spoken to in here, the sentiment was, could we not just get them all out, get the dirty laundry out in the air, put a full stop at the end of 2023 and the end of the controversy and saga, move into 2024 and look at the future and secure funding and be able to move forward and invest in the national broadcaster. So I think that was definitely the the sentiment amongst people in here. But the policy Politicians can only but react to what is coming out and what has come out this week has been, um, you know, incredibly, it shows incredible gaps in governance again, uh, failings around checks and balances not being um, adhered to properly in the national broadcaster, a loss of over €2 million um, due to the toy show, the musical and the money that that would have gone or how far that would have gone in here in other projects is the sense um, what's being lost there. So there is definitely an appetite amongst um, politicians to uh, question RTE executives and board members again. There was always a question, I think, amongst politicians over surely the board knew a little more than we all thought. And I think now it's coming into the sense of, OK, you you actually weren't maybe stepping up and doing your proactive job in this sense. And I think that there used to be a thing they didn't ask the right questions used they, to be and, a thing before. That seems to be the suggestion. Elaine Garrity, so you were... you. Before Ardmore, you were head of news talk at one stage, weren't you? So you've, I was, you and a bit, in a bit in the middle that's relevant as well, Brendan. I was CEO at Screen Producers Ireland, which okay. represents the independent production sector, so connected okay. in that so way you, as well. So you, you yeah. know all this territory well. You picked that piece as well. What's your take on where it's all at now? Well, interesting, as Ashing was saying about pushing, or you were saying about pushing the conversation about funding down the road. I mean, the conversation's been going on for a decade and it's the most difficult conversation to have, you can see, at a political level. It's really unfortunate or fortunate that it's come to this that's actually had to knock heads together to solve it. The future of Public Service Broadcasting Commission's been out, it's given its recommendations and nothing has been done about it. So particularly with the hat on on the independent sector who want to know what the future looks like, the funding has to be solved. There's definitely a difference of opinion. As if you have said, if push comes to shove, it looks like you know a rework of the licence fee, maybe a media charge, but somewhere coming from the exchequer or possibly through revenue. That has to be solved. It's not going away. So you're saying this is maybe a crisis that shouldn't be wasted, that it might finally That's lead exactly to That's exactly it. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. it is disappointing. It's, it's, but I mean, I know from my own experience that it's, it's taken this, it's taken this long to have this conversation. It has to be solved. It's difficult. 
difficult one and there are no popular solutions by the way for anybody but it has to be solved. Is the funding is the funding is solving the funding going to solve everything else no. as well? No. No, but it's huge but it's at the core of it. I mean look, I would agree as well about taking off the sticking plaster and getting it done. The drip drip effect is like, you know, death by a thousand cuts and you can see where it's going in terms of the board and so on. The phrase everything is okay for now there'll be more you know outings there'll be more gossip there'll be you know people will walk the plank and that's going to happen and you could see the writings on the wall about that that has to be solved I mean I'm sure behind the scenes new processes new protocols all of that good work for the future is being done but you've got to solve what's happened in the past Do you think they should have tried to have a musical or was it a mistake? (laughs) It was clearly a mistake um, what I don't Every, understand well, talk- everything that doesn't work is a mistake in retrospect no no for sure but if for any huge expenditure that has to be examined at a board level you know you've got to go through due, due diligence okay, so regardless the process, of, the, it didn't happen yeah, and the questions okay. were and you would think that there was some very real expertise at the board in relation to that you know that kind of area that could comment on it but you know combo groups hearing it afterwards, not asking the right questions. It's very serious to be on a board. It's a really difficult job to chair and clearly the whole thing was a mess. Colin McGorman. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it's, it's a funny one. I mean, when you look at RTE's total budget in 2023, it was 340 million, 140 million of which came from commercial activity. So, Without doubt, when you look at what happened with the Toy Show, the musical, there were massive failures at the executive level, principally, right? I mean, it, it would appear that decisions were not even being brought fully to the executive board, which was the senior leadership team uh, in the organisation, never mind to the board, and real failures at the board level to scrutinise all of that. And at the same time, I think we have to be very careful not to create a climate where an organisation that's so dependent upon commercial activity is not prepared to take risks and sometimes fail. And I think so these a, things yeah. have to be, I yeah. think, seen... Just, just a, a Elaine, a back in there, because that's kind of what I was trying I to ask so. you, Elaine. I mean, you I do want a, a, an enterprising pressure. culture in here, Absolutely. don't you? Absolutely. So where, how, do you, how do you balance that? Because you can see it, um, I think Gary Murphy may have referred to it mm. in his piece in the Sunday Times about the pressure to find new revenue streams. And that pressure was real. You know, so you want to be creative. You want to come up with something enterprising. So you might look at that idea on paper, and say, actually, the, I mean, the toy show is a phenomenon. Anyway, what could we do with it? It's not unreasonable to think that that's a great brainstorming idea. But once you yeah. have that, how do you make it yeah. work? Yeah. And it's, it's okay. Yeah. Okay. Colin, sorry, yeah, yeah. I cut you off there. Gary Murphy then as well, just because you mentioned it was was very interesting on this whole question of funding. I mean, he starts his piece uh, um, in the Sunday Independent on page or on the Sunday, Sunday Times, Times, page fifteen of the Sunday Times. Remembering back to 1966, just just before Sean Lamas uh, stepped down as Taoiseach, where Lamas was expressing his frustrations um, at RTE criticism of, of, of government. He told the doll that RTE was set up by legislation as an instrument of public policy and as such was responsible to the government. And he stated, uh, uh, he rejected the view that RTE should be either generally or in regard to its current affairs and news programmes, completely independent of government supervision. Now, we're a long way away from 1966, right, first and foremost. But equally, it really does highlight the fact that when we when we look at this question of exchequer funding or how the organisation will be funded or how public sector broadcasting will be funded, one of the things that has to be built in, if it's exchequer funding, is a guarantee of independence from political decision making. That's a given. Yeah, I, the, big I, worry, the big worry yeah. that I have, by the way, is that, you know, taking yeah, okay, on board fully, fully, fully what Elaine said, 
that this can is being kicked down the road yet again. I mean, okay. there is no indication. Okay, I mean, I agree completely with Colm there because you were talking the big picture and the small picture and we are going to be getting the details and there should be accountability of what happened. But this is a massive decision for the government about how to fund RTE and I'm glad to hear the deliberation because this is going to have huge impacts for decades on how RTE is funded. It's not a light decision you take lightly. So here the Taoiseach is, is, uh, prefers the idea of this exchequer funding. I'm back from Australia. I was there at Christmas. Their ABC, which is quite like the RTE, that's funded completely by the government. They don't have ads. But people were talking about that. They're worried about, on the one hand, you've, you've I'm not saying this would happen, but you've got, always got a risk of political interference. But also that would mean that uh, an institution or RTE would be uh, susceptible to budget cuts. So what happens in eight years if you've got a government who suddenly thinks, well, actually, we're not going to prioritise public sector funding anymore. We don't agree with it. Apart from the whole editorial interference, well, that's going to have ramifications. So I think this is a really big and important moment. And it, the government really does have to think about this seriously. It's good to hear this debate. And it will be good to get a lot of scrutiny, I think, on why this decision has been made, how it's been made, and, and what is the right model for Ireland. So what I'm getting from everyone here, Ashling, is that, and probably back to where we started, that that's the really important thing here. So maybe that, obviously there are difficulties, clearly, we can only surmise, with getting these reports out quickly because there are, you know, well, yeah, nobody, are individuals nobody have named to be last consulted week and, 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 kind of and, and such. Like but they were in train for six months. But that RT needs to help itself here by moving on the, the, the circus. Yeah, the narrative the and, and pushing, and, yeah, and, and then and then we get back to the because the government can't really make a decision amongst all this circus, as you called it. But also, I suppose the government are also ha- also have their two external committees that are reviewing governance issues and separately HR issues in in RTE. And Catherine Martin kind of said any decision wouldn't be made until they're delivered. And I'm, I'm my understanding is is that's towards the end of February. So it's it's chucking along, I suppose, nicely in that regard. What I would say on the funding issue. This um, situation about exchequer funding, there are, as you say, other um, places in the world that employ this. And I actually spoke to Kevin Backers, the Director General of RTE, about this before Christmas. And he was saying that he prefers a model that is sustainable in the, in the, in the main. He said, I, he couldn't, I couldn't nail him down on which one, but he said, exchequer funding in other countries is done on a multi-annual funding yeah. year. So they can't be uh, interfered with. And it's done um, on a five or six year cycle. So it's mm. not an election cycle, whichever mm. gets it out of the election cycle. Um, so that was quite interesting and I think the problem with this broadcast charge I, I think a lot of the decisions for government may be made by circumstance and I know they were leaning more towards just a reform of the TV licence something like a broadcast charge and then the whole saga with RTE and people revolting against the TV licence kind of put them on the back foot on that decision. So exchequer funding has nearly come become more likely. Um, but what because, about the kick in the can Because people the don't trust RTE happen? and they don't want to pay for it. Mm. And Everyone they, pays for it instead. Well, they. I know it's a hard thing to It's thinking, isn't it? Mm. Um, Elaine, what would you do now if you were uh, running RTE? Why? Is that an unfair question? <laughs> <laughs> Off you go, Elaine. What time is it? <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, if you had a three-point plan, maybe, or a one-point plan, one one plan. plan. Yes. Listen, I think part of it is, is out of everybody's control is just to get all of the, the history solved and, and the legacy issues done and, and get a clean slate and get in there quickly. There are difficult decisions to be made. Like if I think about the mix of, you know, news, current affairs, which RT does 
brilliantly or whatever. There's another side to it, which is, and I know there's been a bit of grumble about the independent sector and what's made or whatever. But I just think for Kevin Backhurst, I don't need to teach him how to do things. Yeah. Stick to the plan. And the DG has said that there is He's a lot one. more money going out to the independent sector. No, no they have. And, and by the way, like, yeah. well done uh, on Larry and Chin and Will and Dancing with the Stars. Like, you know, that's a punt to take on that for another year and it's doing well. So great. Yeah. But I mean, look, Kevin Backhurst, Backhurst has a plan. He said it. Just allow him to get on with it couple more small issues around public sector, public service broadcasting. Ashling, The Sun, page 21. Uh, yes. Subtitles. This is a, in, a very interesting story and one that's quite close to my own heart. Um, so there are issues with uh, deaf customers of RTE getting um, subtitles on live programming like the Late Late Show and the news. Yeah, um, I think it's people who have Virgin. Exactly. Have so this is, but I mean, that's a lot yeah. of customers. You're talking yeah, yeah. a couple, tens of thousands of people there um, who aren't getting subtitles. And then obviously that's m- much more difficult for those who are hard of hearing my own dad is deaf and this is an issue that came up over Christmas and he was like will you please make the subtitles and I was like I'm not a tech genius I don't know what I'm doing here is he completely cut off from yeah from so he's watching now. the news with with um, with with no subtitles he's kind of surmising what they're saying now he has a cochlear implant so th- he can get some of uh, the sound through but um, it's very difficult and I mean he watches the news more than I do like the man has the six and the nine in every night and he's paid his TV licence his whole life this is the kind of thing that this is why you have a public service broadcaster to facilitate those minority audiences, those audiences mm. that would otherwise maybe not be provided for by the commercial sector. But what I will say is that we put on Disney Plus or Netflix or whatever and we can get subtitles on all those. I know they're yeah, on demand pre- pre- and the on-demand well, stuff in RTE like, yeah. does have subtitles. But look, I mean, it's the news and it's the Late Late Show, you know, and absolutely he, he should have I'm access sure to I'm sure would either things. be much better even the subtitles when they do work can be a bit scrappy they, on the uh, well, look, stuff, I, I'm sure know, AI I've is going to fix all that the yeah. jokes come in yeah. a couple of seconds late but it, it, yeah. it still works but I mean, listen, still the access is your good, father's right. a classic Irish dad the six and the nine that's <laughs> old yeah. school isn't it yeah. <laughs> yeah. I hear it going um, on I'm like oh and God. listen before, <laughs> before and we leave it all then Elaine uh, you picked out Neve Horn's interview with Brian Dobson on page three of Sunday Independent briefly I mean Look, what a great guy. Sorry to see him go. But interesting about him, I mean, he was talking about why now, because he didn't have to leave so soon. Just compulsory uh, retirement is coming up. And, he, you know, he wanted to do it on his own terms and on his timing. And I think that's great. Interesting, he never negotiated a salary, never had an agent. That was it. That was just done. Um, huge support for Kevin Backhurst and what he's doing. And on a, you know, a lighter note, no pun intended, but the health issue for him having to lose three and a half stone because of his own health going into retirement or whatever. So it's a lovely piece. Wish him well. And I'd say he'd be missed. Yeah. OK. Uh, we'll move on to uh, politics. Um, Ashing, will you just just um, start us off uh, on this with Phil Hogan? Okay. In the business post today is interesting. Yeah, he is quite interesting. He's kind of, uh, he was interviewed by um, uh, Daniel Murray in the business post and um, he's saying that he thinks that a June, a June general election could be likely. I know people are m- might be aware you're going to be going to the polls to vote in the local and the European elections in June, but he's saying that June could be likely, even though the Taoiseach has said that that's not going to happen. He said that Bertie Ahern, before he came leader of Fianna Fáil, said he wasn't going to be leader of Fianna Fáil. So you never know. We've never seen ever in politics. Um, yes, yeah, so he's raising that issue and he's also talking about, I suppose, that uh, he thinks that Sinn Féin's support isn't as um, uh, uh, as um, powerful or a, 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 as permanent as, as people think. And I suppose that's what's represented by the poll. Suggested, suggested by the by poll, the poll um, in the Business Post today. So OK, very quickly, yeah. state of the parties. So, um, 
the poll was conducted by Red Sea and it was a random sample, interviewed a random sample of 1,003 adults between January 19th and 24th. So what we have is the poll is suggesting that Sinn Féin is on 25% with a loss of four percentage points there. Uh, Fianna Gael, no change on 20%. Fianna Falls, uh, plus 1% on 17 uh, The Independents um, uh, on 15%, increasing two percentage points there. The Social Democrats on 6%, no change. Labour on 4%, no change. Greens on 4%, no change. People before profit on 3%, no change. AIN2 is up um, at 3%, and other parties are at 3%. And now those other parties are Ireland First, uh, Irish Freedom Party, and the National Party, who would be right wing parties. So that's the that's the, the political party poll uh, represent or okay. suggesting there, what Red okay. is suggesting there. Thank you. Okay, Colm, your views on that. Yeah, it's 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 uh, well, it's a poll first of all, as every politician will tell us as they come out to come <laughs> to this, and it's one poll. But it, but it is yeah. interesting. I do think some of the stuff that comes out of this is is kind of fascinating. I mean, if you look at Richard uh, Colwell, whose whose analysis of this I all, uh, always enjoy. I'm not sure A2 will thank him today because he seems to be lumping A2 together with far right parties, uh, the three that you mentioned just earlier on in in flagging their their, their particular rises in support. The A2 one as well, it's up one percent within a, a a poll at the margin of errors, three percent. So I suppose we shouldn't get too carried away. One of the things I do worry a little bit about is is the degree to which there's a rush to to in a very unnuanced way to say that immigration will be the key issue as we head into this election. And for me, an example of, of that is a piece by uh, Connell Thomas in the Sunday Business Post as well, where he's talking about specific questions on migration that were asked within this particular poll. It's been fairly consistent. Well, let, Two let me, of people today. I, I That's agree. been consistent well, in polls saying we're taking too many migrants. So, in recent well, times, well, it has. So it's, it's fascinating to see how there, there'll be a significant comment on a move of one percentage point in the polls in relation to parties who hold strongly anti-immigration views. Mm-hmm. But actually, based on their own analysis, the, the polling on that question, the Red Sea poll shows that 66% of people agreed with the statement Ireland has taken in too many r- refugees. A previous poll conducted in May last year found that 75% of people agreed with the statement that Ireland was taking in too many refugees. Yeah. So on that basis, there's been a nine-point drop in the number of people who think that Ireland is taking in too many refugees. Which, if you don't mind me saying so, yeah. it's kind of a stupid question. Ireland has taken in too many refugees. Those kind of blunt questions that, that lack any kind of nuance or understanding of the context within which all of this is happening don't really tell us very much. So you so think we're in a kind of a rush to, to make this a big issue and, to, and, and also this thing of looking for where is the home for the, for the right-wing voters as well. I think the independence being suggested as people who are getting a bump out of it. Suzanne, you, uh, I think were, you looked at this as just, well. D- yeah, d- okay. Just clarify just, one yeah. very quick thing. I think there are very significant issues that are revealed in this polls about the impact of significant population increases, particularly in small uh, rural areas, okay. where the provision of services is not is not being is is not at the level it needs to be. Those are real, real issues. But to lump that together into some sort of anti-immigration sentiment is. I think deeply, deeply flawed and deeply, deeply problematic. We need to be a much more nuanced in the analysis of this. Yeah, I mean, this is the, the challenge is analysing. Is this just a blip? Why exactly is that happening? And what kind of questions are people asked in this? You'd have a more global view on this from Europe. Well, it's, it, yeah, it's a huge issue in Europe. We're, we're in a big election year. You know, the European Parliament elections are coming up uh, in, in June. And around Europe, yeah, immigration is an issue. And we see it in Germany, for example, um, 
the government there is under pressure uh, about immigration. We see it in places like the Netherlands with the election of a really right-wing leader there because of immigration. So it's a challenge for the EU because the EU has never really been able to get a coherent policy on, on migration. At the end of the day, the problem is countries have the right to control their own immigration. And yet, the way the EU, particularly in the Schengen area and in the, in the continental Europe, once you enter a country, you can kind of cross the border into another country. So this is the, the kind of flaw. Um, so you've got a lot of countries in the, the richer countries, essentially. Most migrants who come in uh, through the Western Balkans, down in the southeast, want to head to Germany or want to head to the Netherlands. They don't want to stay in the first place they arrive. That's what. So it's a, it's a big issue uh, politically across Europe. But... In a way, I mean, what it comes down to, though, when you see these polls, it's always interesting reading uh, Sunday papers when there's one poll and the other papers have different uh, articles not knowing what the poll results are. Like, for example, what I struck me was uh, this article on in the Daily Mail, page 34, about Sinn Féin's uh, getting there, they say, army of female candidates. It will win the title for best uh, title, Chucky Armanaugh. <laughs> and But it was very interesting insight into the work Sinn Féin is doing for the local elections and the European elections and getting their candidates in. And this ultimately what ha- yeah. you know what happens in every single country. It's about who you're running in which constituency. And they are doing a lot of work there. It, it, this is about gender, but they're getting ready with, they've been estimated 110 female candidates. Now it's saying that Fine Gael is going to uh, finalise their selection process in the second week of February but what they're actually doing on the ground in these constituencies that's what's going to matter in the elections rather than these big sweepy ideas at the moment is it immigration and you know that kind of thing so that's one it's again it's the big picture and the small picture it'll get more granular as it goes on okay Um, Ashling back to to what Colin was saying there um, about that there rather than it being this big broad issue mm. of uh, are we all racist now father <laughs> that this is to do with local communities and, and yeah. specific issues you picked a piece in the Mail on Sunday by John Drennan refugee centres too little too late yeah indeed so we're going to see a plan from uh, the integration minister Roger Cogorman in the coming weeks about acquiring uh, large accommodation centres to house um, asylum seekers coming in and I suppose the maths around this is is, is kind of interesting so um Ministers at the Cabinet Subcommittee on Ukraine, which has kind of become a de facto Cabinet Subcommittee on Migration, met on Thursday and are understood to have been told that Ireland could expect up to 20,000 asylum seekers to come here in 2024, which we've seen an increased number in the last um, in the last two years, uh, 13,000 around uh, that figure each year. But that is on track with the global phenomenon that is increased migration and every country is seeing it. It's not just us. Um, but interestingly, the centres that are being talked about um, that the government is going to be bringing is a number of potentially six reception centres for asylum seekers that could bring around, let's say, around 4,000 beds. But mm. I mean, if you're talking about twenty, potentially 20,000 people coming here um, in 2024, well, I mean, it doesn't add up. It means you need to turn them over s- four times in the year, Exactly. It? So you but need also, to have a process there. Would that be right, Colin? But this you is also, about, at the moment, this, just yeah, to, just yeah, to yeah, note, sorry, at yeah. the moment, indirect provision currently I think there are nearly 6,000 people who have status who cannot move out of the direct provision centre because there is nowhere for them but to go. That's different than okay. the Ukrainian system which is on a different yeah, track. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. But this is all the but asylum Colin, can I ask you, yeah. Is this to do with the, the proper processing of, of, uh, of the refugees who come here? 
So I think the first thing to say is that... Like that, that you that, could, the, if the, you had 4,000 beds and you've 20,000 a year coming, does that not mean, so you've to, you've to turn it over five times in the year, that, that basically people should be here for an average of two months and get their decision and get out, and then you, the system would work. I, I think the idea that we'd have asylum decisions in two months is nirvana. Uh, um, I don't Why? think that's ever going to happen because our, our our asylum system is not that efficient. Now, it's gotten an awful lot better. It's gotten an awful lot better. And let's be really, really clear. It is the responsibility of the state to provide an effective, efficient, fair and objective asylum process where it can it, where it can yeah, do that work. It can do it in an efficient, in an effective, in an effective uh, way and in a timely way. It hasn't done that historically, but it's gotten an awful lot better. But the idea that you could... In the idea that you could assess all applications in a two-month time frame is probably unrealistic. A six-month time frame is is the kind of standard that certainly would be great to see us hit, and we're not there yet. But that would be really, really good. I mean, it, it strikes me that uh, again in in the Sunday in the Sunday Times in an article by Claire Scott on page two, she has comments from from uh, Leo Radker saying that our, our migration policy going forward has to have four elements. One is communication. The second is enforcement. The third is accommodation, and the fourth is in recognizing communities. Interestingly, they said the second is enforcement. I mean. I think the second should be efficiency and effectiveness and fairness. Mm. Uh, and, and enforcement is part of all of that. Absolutely. By enforcement, do they mean, though, a, a system that works? A like, system, and, and, well, and, and I mean, a system that works is, is absolutely works. the thing that we need. But that needs to be fair, objective, compliant with, with both European and international mm. human rights law. And it needs to be effective. Right now, it isn't. I think it's a good move to move towards the state moving away from private provision. That has not worked well. 4,000 beds being provided by the state, 4,000 spaces, is very significant. I mean, it's easy to say it's a drop in the ocean and it's too little, too late. It's 4,000 beds that we don't currently have at a time when 500 people are sleeping yeah. on the streets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't I, I mean, it's similar to 700 now. Probably yeah. at this stage, yeah, because yeah, it's, it's right. It's similar to the housing crisis and that one of the problems with the housing crisis is that instead of public housing, a lot of the public housing problems have been put onto the private sector. Mm. And this is what was done with the yeah. refugee policy. Oh, let's go into the private sector, in that case, hotels. But it, it's a bit like the RTE conversation that the nobody, if we were sitting here 10 years ago, none of us were discussing the asylum policy in Ireland. And actually it was happening. The monthly, you know, asylum, well, you were a column. A lot, of us, a lot of us were. Um, but, you know, it wasn't, it's when it becomes, a, now everyone has woken up to it and now everybody in the street and politically it's become a big issue. But it wasn't politically and, and it's sad, but it's only when politicians are under pressure from their constituents that they say, right, we need to do something about this. And actually something well, should have it, been is done. Well, it not that the system numbers are, and the numbers as well. Well, yeah. to, be, to, be fair, though, to be fair though, there was a commitment to abolishing direct provision in the current programme for government and again to, again to be fair that was pre-Ukraine and pre-arrival yeah. of 100,000 people under the temporary protection directive which was yeah. put in place yeah, by the numbers, well, the numbers very, very, are very still in Europe nothing like Elaine, 2015 to, Well I mean the man beside me column has been in the middle of this for so many <laughs> years but like talking about conversations we're all having these conversations now in corners or in our homes or in the offices or whatever and for me it's about actually feeling comfortable to have an honest conversation and maybe ask some questions that we're not so comfortable with. That's fair. I mean, I don't understand the process that you're outlining. I don't know how it happens. I want to know. And um, obviously, I want to know how it can be solved. But I think it is now on everybody's agenda one way or the other. It's how the narrative goes that I'm interested in. Mm -hmm. You talked about bringing it right back to the beginning, which is around this poll and how we're now, you know, positioning Sinn Féin and their position on migration, 
immigration. And then we're also the the smaller parties like Ain to are we now calling them far right? Is that where that? No, position? we're not. Nobody no, we're not. But it, right. it is being asked out loud. Is that what's being said? I suppose the suggestion okay. from that what you're saying there about the Sinn Fein that Sinn Fein's loss is because they would have would would be seen to have a lot of anti-establishment vote, and then those anti-establishment people may not be satisfied with how hard or what their perception is of how hard Sinn Fein are going and are going to the independents who um, you know let's just say the rural independent grouping for example leans right in in the doll now they're not a party and they are a group yeah. of independents mm-hmm. not all independents in the doll lean that way just that group so that's where that seemed to be that yeah. Sinn Féin are so losing right. but Sinn Féin yeah. have think already it's moved all, also moved well, well the, yeah, their position seems to be uh, they're waiting for the government to outline the position clearly and then they will respond yeah. interesting line in there just before we leave it that I, I thought was worth paying attention I think it's in Daniel Murray piece or else Richard Colwell's piece Sinn Féin are, according to these polls are not taking the votes they're losing are not going to the government it's moving between the opposition Okay, look we leave that there for now Uh, Suzanne Lynch Elaine Garrity Ashley Maloney and Colin McGorman are staying with us but we'll take a quick break Brendan O'Connor on RTE Radio 1. Welcome back. Our panel still with us. Suzanne Lynch, Elaine Geraghty, Ashling Maloney and Colin McGorman. And um, Elaine, can we talk about um, the something positive? <laughs> What's to. going on with Irish film, Irish film producers, our actors, our, our creatives in general, even our cinematographers. So you've picked a piece in the Mail on Sunday, Stars of the Big Green. Yeah, look, it's a great time. But it didn't happen overnight. That's the point. Just by way of background, I yeah. grew up in a family of people in the film business yeah. at a time when there wasn't a film business and you just waited for the phone to ring and an American accent saying, we're coming to Ireland to make Barry Lyndon and we eat again. And I'm not making that up. Yeah. It's true. Yeah. And then, you know, as Ed Guiney said in a piece actually in the Indo um, around Element and their success of in the, in the and so Sunday on. Times, is it? Sorry, yeah, the Sunday Times. Things things element, yeah. yeah, but about Element and how they're doing with poor t- things. That this didn't happen overnight. It's to do with government support, but it's also the fact that we've we've had time to grow brilliant crew, and we have best in the world. They travel anywhere. We've got obviously, I would say, this great studio space and lots more being built, and really great people that do do well at what they do. And if you come to film here, you've got a great experience. And and by the way, you can film anywhere in the world now. Like the competition is such that it's back of an envelope stuff about budget. Where can I go? Where's the tax break? Have you got studio? Do you have crew? Fine, we'll make a decision. But I suppose the secret sauce is when you get here, if you have all of those, what's the experience like? So it's great. I mean, I think half the nominees in the Best Actor list, if I'm correct. In the Golden Globes. In the Golden Globes were Irish. Irish. I mean, that is huge for all of us yeah. Uh, and you know yeah the idea that we do punch yes we do punch but we actually have an industry now you can go and work in this business and get a mortgage you couldn't do 20 years ago people will take you seriously and it's growing but we've got to fight for everything I mean we've been very well supported by the government over the years in the recent budget I'd have to acknowledge the the increase in the cap which means if you've got a bigger budget you, you can go for the tax break now which means we attract those bigger projects but look at the amount of Irish indigenous local content to use the word is being made like it's yeah. phenomenal and, and outside and so tell me then well. right I have a couple of questions yeah. then. so so you you talk about that as if it all kind of grew organically but it didn't so no. somebody made a decision at some stage this is could be a winner for us we pick a winner and we grow a winner that, so, so how do you do that how could we apply it to something else 
And and secondly, then you said about the Irish indigenous. And I suppose the other question we talk about in industry in Ireland is that we have great industries, but they don't make that jump or great companies but a lot of them don't make that jump then to becoming bigger companies and to becoming international True, and scaling so. is different is difficult for for any company and any industry and any business just to make that jump and I think Element are probably a really good example of what they've done yeah. um, in between what they've done on the ground with, with local projects and also huge international like the favourite poor things and things like that so a couple of things one is I think the government had the foresight to support the industry and see the value and section 481 which is the tax credit has morphed over time um, and and they have been persuaded by all of us all along that it's worth doing because it is not only about jobs because we create jobs but it's also about that cultural element cultural with the capital C and what we do and what's the DNA about doing things in Ireland and that works so they bought into that and it's reaped rewards because all you've got to do is go over to LA at Oscar weeks and I you know I was lucky enough to be there a lot not for the Oscars just in the run up mm-hmm. and if you're Irish and you're in town everyone wants to talk to you seriously all of the big studios they want okay. to they want to see you we're they want sexy, to meet you we? we're very sexy Brandon <laughs> yeah, and we yeah. know how to do what we do and, and we've a different DNA say then our, our friends in the UK and even the, the Americans on the ground we know how to do it okay so we're naturally good at this we and are and the government did take a punt and, and recognise this and training and, and Brendan that's yeah, the other thing yeah. like you know the worst thing that could happen here is we've got the tax credit right and we've got some great studios and we've good writers and we don't have enough crew yeah. to, to so actually serve you need the serve. right courses and everything you in need the, the course and a lot, of, a lot of effort has been put into that I'm involved in a few of the skills groups myself and so it's building but it takes time and you've got to have patience and you've got to support it does not happen overnight one of the other things that's happening is to try and decentralise filming you know of all types so when I say decentralise I really mean Dublin and Wicklow and go okay. west and go south um, look at Cork huge hub for film the west mid, you know regionalisation and that doesn't happen overnight because if you're coming to make a project and you say we'd like to film say with us in Troy in Limerick well what's the crew base like it's good, but it needs to be a lot better. And that's going to take us five to ten years. So a little bit of faith, a little bit of support. And then the island of Ireland becomes one of the best film destinations okay. in the world. So, so we're doing well. So what's going here is what we would call a cluster, isn't it? It's like a cluster. We're, we're, that's exactly and, and, what it is. And, and I mean, people can get everything they you want. You can. And, and by the way, not every production company is going to do what Element does, what Metropolitan and Wild Atlantic Pictures, who are one of the biggest, you know, not. But we don't need that to happen. You know, there are lots of mid-sized companies as well. And it's a small community which actually works for us. It means we're all supporting each other. But it's it's, it's fantastic when Oscar time comes around. And even the nomination is the currency. Mm. The win is fantastic. But the nomination gets people talking. Okay, fantastic. We stay with the film business. Suzanne Lynch, you have picked two pieces about... uh, Barbie, the movie, yeah. which is nominated for Best Picture yeah. this year, but uh, Greta Gerwig did not mm. get nominated for Best Director. Yeah, now I'm worried I'll be excommunicated by my views, which I'm about to express. <laughs> okay. But I was, I was like the ad about, you know, do you understand a tracker mortgage? I was one of the people going to the Barbie movie and I didn't really enjoy it and I felt I couldn't speak out. <laughs> I was like, not really, I quietly, and now I see to my delight, the paper is filled with, two, well, there's two fantastic pieces. Camilla Long, The Sunday Times. Let's admit that Barbie's just not Oscar material 
and Kenanuff. Eilish O'Hanlon in the Sunday Indo asperus the awards outrage over a silly film about a plastic doll. And this is the controversy this week that um, the lead actress and director, both women, did not get Oscar nominations uh, or Glo- Golden Globe nominations this week. And listen, they're hilarious. Um, th- I mean, Eilish O'Hanlon series basically saying it's not good enough for them. They got eight awards and they should kind of be happy uh, with that. And uh, said, for example, um, we have this almost have prizes mentality. And she talks um, about Ryan Gosling, who wrote a letter in solidarity with his female colleagues saying they should have been on the list. And she said, well, who did he suggest should have got turfed off the list of best women? So anyway, it's a hilarious thing. And and Camilla Long's even more cutting, saying that it's a pretty useless film. She gave a two uh, star review at the beginning. And now she said, I told you so. I've been waiting for my moment. So I kind of feel like that. But yes, they're both worth a read. Okay. That's what Barbie was all about. <laughs> liberating Suzanne's view on how bad the movie is. Was. That what, is, is that what <laughs> no. it is about? No, absolutely. I mean, look, I, I see I, it's a metaphor for everything. No, that the fi- apparently the Oscars have proved Barbie was right. Yeah, everything. I feel yeah. like there's a bit of snobbery, though, yeah. around the Oscars really that some films, you know, don't quite make it. It's nominated that. for Best Picture. Yeah, but the, this idea that the director. But now I will I will admit she, that I agree she, that Margot Robbie's has been performance may not have been Best Actress worthy. But as you say, the film is there. So, like, there is is recognition for it on that stage but there is a perception that well, the Oscars are a little bit snobby well, what Ben Affleck won, won uh, yeah. the, I, I, I've taken an interest in this story <laughs> Ben Affleck won uh, Best Picture for Argo he was not nominated for Best Director at all there's a, there's a lot of it goes on mm. Greta Gerwig I think was nominated her first three films the uh, the, the only woman to have three films yeah. nominated mm. for Best Picture and I think they were her first and three there were other she has been directors. nominated for Best Director for yeah. uh Catherine Bigelow. For, for uh, Little... Little Women. La- Ladybird. Possibly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is another woman, isn't there? Well, look, director. it's nominated for Best Song, so I'm just really looking forward to seeing Ken. Oh, yes. <laughs> Imagine that, you know, arriving looking beautiful on the red car. Is he going to dress up for it and do the, the song he's going to sing? And Gosling. Did you know, Elaine, as I say, I've taken an interest in this, did you know that the marketing budget for Barbie cost more than the cost of the film? Yeah, wow. I, they made even, it for I, I wouldn't even blink at that. They made it a hundred, for 145 million, they made the film. They spent 150 yeah, I would, million I wouldn't on marketing to brainwash everybody into thinking about it. Why wouldn't you blink at that? Explain that. Look how much they made, though. Because look what we're all talking okay, about. Okay, yeah. and, okay. And yeah. visually, I mean, look, it, it, I, I would say it's up for production design because it's a visual feast. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it's mm. stunning what they've done. And sure, all the outfits but for Margot's red exactly. carpets were you know, hard, there's, part there's, of the there's a saying thing. about things about films when when the line that you have is, but it just it looks great, doesn't it? Yeah. You know, yeah. And, and then you stop. You, <laughs> you, you often hear people say, you can see the money on screen. You can see the money. <laughs> Sorry, my, my brother's a production designer, so I should put my hands up and say okay, that anyway. Okay. But like when we're saying that, but here we are talking about it. I but was, you see, I, I, I thought it was really, I thought it was really evil that the marketing costs more than the actual film, that it said something about the world and how we all got con. You're just going, I'm not surprised. But it's also kind of Colm O'Gorman, as a man, speaking as a man. When I heard they were making a Barbie film, I went, what? How in God's name are you going to make a film out of Barbie? And then I went to see it with fairly low expectations and I enjoyed it. Is it the best film ever made? No. Uh, Does it deserve a whole slew of Oscars? 
No. Was Margot Robbie out, uh, extraordinary in it? No. But it was great crack mm. and it was interesting and it was, yeah. you know, I had... I, I didn't spend an awful lot of time when I came out of the cinema thinking about the deep messages that it contained, right? And I might after. And did you only go once? I did only go once. Right? <laughs> and most I, people <laughs> seem to have seen and it. I, and I, I, didn't, I didn't go to see Oppenheimer on the same day. I waited to see that because I knew that was a film that I wanted to see post the hype and really yeah. take yeah, my time too. to get into. I haven't seen it. Yeah. And for me, that was the outstanding film of last year. And and, mm. and Killian Murphy was That's extraordinary. Such a, but such a man. But Brendan's point about the marketing. I loved Barbie. Don't get me wrong. I mean, it was so camp and ridiculous and fun. Yeah, but Brendan's point about the marketing. Ironically, the film is quite good at satirising Mattel. Yeah. It's this meta exactly. commentary yeah. Yeah. because it's yeah. saying that this is a creation of these big these guys in boardrooms, and they, they, they could have cleverly done something with that film. I think the plot. I think it was really badly done. That whole storyline. They could have done so much more with that. But as you're saying, isn't it so ironic that they then, as a film, put more into marketing? They, they're all. I think this know, says everything about the world today, yeah. and yeah. then the fact that having spent 150 million on marketing, they then got every girl in the world to market it yeah. for them on yeah. social media yeah. and everything. The whole thing is are we, sinister. Are we, surprised, are we surprised that a film production company, a film studio, spent a lot of money on marketing a film so that it would make an awful lot of money? And it did. <laughs> they did their jobs extraordinarily yeah. Yeah. well. Yeah. Yeah. But, but, but my generation, your generation, Colm, we were suspicious of the marketers. <laughs> <laughs> But now it seems everyone must embrace it, or else you'd be, or else named and shamed like Suzanne Lynch. Just be thankful that wasn't one of the ideas on the table when Toy Show the Musical was being discussed. So yeah, I think this story is contained in the irony, though, that Ken got the nomination and not Barbie. And I think that's if if none of those actors got the and Greta Gerwig, but they were. I don't think this would be as big of a story. It's it's the irony in it. um, Oh, is it? Okay, very good. Okay, there are other uh, things happening as well. America. Um, Suzanne, you picked the editorial in the Business Post. Biden is too old and far from perfect, but must prevail over Trump. So you spent uh, a lot of time yeah, in America. Yeah, I was a former correspondent with the Irish Times there. So this this time four years ago, I was in New Hampshire and I'm I'm watching all this now, uh, what's happening there, having having covered the campaign. And I just can't believe, uh, you know, having been there January the 6th, etc., that, that Trump is about to become the nominee. I think he is definitely going to become the Republican Party nominee and it's going to be a Biden-Trump rematch. Um, but it, it, I think it's what's going to be... Extraordinary state of affairs, yeah, isn't it? It is, and I mean, it's, it's reflect- actually unbelievable. Like, yeah, it's more unbelievable than the Barbie situation, like, and more serious. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah like the yeah. real world is also turned into. Yeah. And it's interesting. I was in Davos last week. I mean, I know the teacher was there, and all the the great and the good of the business and political world, and everybody was talking about. It. I think last week what happened when when Trump won Iowa decisively and then New Hampshire, it's now become real and people are realising this is happening. So it's quite interesting. You can see all the trained politicians. Nobody wants to say it in public. They say, oh, we respect the democratic will of the American people. and they're, But behind the scenes, everybody's talking about. So the Europeans, there's a big meeting coming up in Brussels this week of EU leaders. They're trying to get money to Ukraine. It's been blocked by Hungary. But one of the reasons they've been saying behind the scenes they want to get this over the line, the 50 billion, is the worry that America is, is about to check out yeah. and they need to get this over the line. So you've got that, you've got the business community wondering what the impact will be. Um, and then, of course, foreign policy. Yeah, I think and the business community are a bit more well, nuanced than they that. They are, like of course. We saw some people exactly, having yeah. um, Road to Damascus style conversions where they seem to be saying, oh, well, Trump did good things. So, yeah. you know, you're wondering, are they positioning themselves and trying to get in his good graces ahead of, of taking over? Um, but I suppose the only thing, I don't think it's a done deal that Trump will win the election. 
Uh, there's been a lot of coverage this week um, that he is still very weak among the, the people who didn't vote for him the last time. The um, the more uh, educated, yes, exactly. Those more educated voters, um, more independent mind, and, and the and the the reality that say the people who voted for Nikki Haley in that primary, you know, where are their votes going to go? Um, they will not vote for Donald Trump. The big question is, will they be motivated enough to vote for President Biden? Yeah. Yeah. But I do think one thing I, I learned from from reporting this in America. We all talk about Donald Trump, but people in America talk about Donald Trump. The people who don't like him, which is most of the country, let's remember, both. He lost the election the last time. And it's they, a, a I think they will, the yeah, but I think though. they will yeah. still, even if they're not happy, the polls show it, they're not particularly happy with Joe Biden. I think the threat of a Donald Trump presidency will be enough of a pressure for them to go out and vote for Joe Biden. I think the yeah. prospect of a When a I say, return, by the way, it's an extraordinary situation, I mean not just Trump, but Biden as well. Mm, like the yeah. fact that Biden's a great saviour. Um, Elaine, you picked Marion McKeown's piece in the Business Post. Yeah, and I about Suzanne and her knowledge and all of this. I like to sort of listen to Marion as well during the week when she's given the lowdown. So she has a piece in the Business Post on page 19. But maybe you can help in this, Suzanne. She's talking about a couple of people that they've recruited for yeah. the Trump campaign this time around. Susie Wiles, Wills, a veteran Republican operative, and Chris La Cavita, best known for masterminding mendacious but devastating effect swift voting of John Kerry in 2004. And then sort of saying that, you know, as opposed to having the clown car group of people that he had around him last time around that it could be much... That, that's a really good point. It, it, in a way, it's what I was mentioning earlier about Sinn Féin's ground game, but it does come down to a ground game in key swing states. The handful of swing states. I mean, there is a really broader picture about America's electoral system being broken, that there's something seriously wrong with the way they run it and you've got the red states and the blue states. But ultimately, they have got these... And yeah, I, I noticed that you're absolutely right to pick out that issue, that they have a good ground game now. They've got serious people who know the polls. They're going to be targeting votes. Now, Biden, it's a bit more complex for him because there are rules around this. He's the president and he's also going to be campaigning. The other point is the last time he campaigned, it was during COVID. I was there myself and he, he didn't, didn't have to leave his basement. Yeah. Yeah. There was no Democratic... Conve- so there's a whole different... And, and there's also um, some arguments coming from the Democrat side, which I think are a good point, that they need to go in harder against Trump. They're not really criticising him. They're obviously criticising him for his age and what they perceive as his mental unfitness. They need to be getting right back well, at that as well. Well, they are suggesting as well. Biden yeah. is suggesting that it will be the end of democracy yeah. and the dictatorship. So we've grown in hard yeah. enough, I think. I think um, Colin, yeah. there, was, there, was, there was some interesting polling that I saw that said that 75% of the US electorate don't want either of them as their mm. candidates. And yet that's the choice that they're going to have to make. So that yeah. really speaks to what you were sure, saying yeah. um, um, uh, um, earlier on, Brendan. Colin, can we move it on then to, to obviously one thing that could damage Biden, people feel at this stage, is uh, his stance on, on uh, Israel. And you did pick uh, the, the big kind of story around the Middle East this weekend is uh, the UNRWA story. Yeah. You picked a piece in the Sunday Independent in Ireland to keep funding UNRWA despite alleged Hamas collusion. And UNRWA is a specific UN agency for uh, Palestine. Palestinian refugees, yeah. And it, 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 it provides uh, services to over 2.3 million people. And if you think about the situation right now that those people are facing, any suggestion that that agency could be decimated um, is deeply, deeply worrying. I mean, is Israel, the is, Israeli Foreign Minister Israel Katz has said that his government plans to stop UNRWA from ever operating in Gaza again. They're trying to dismantle the agency. They've done that before. 
Now, let's um, um, try and put some context on all of this. Israel has alleged that 12 members of UNRWA staff were involved in those horrific attacks on October 6th. Um, the UN is investigating that. Nine have been terminated whilst they're investigating it. One is dead and they're trying to identify who the two others are. Antonio Guerreras, the, 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 the Secretary General, has been out saying that they will pursue this fully and they're very, very committed to prosecutions if any members of UN staff have been involved in criminality, as they should be. But I think we also have to put this in context. There are 13,000 UNRWA staff, 13,000 people. The idea somehow that on the basis of allegations that are coming from Israel, which have to be taken seriously, uh, will, will mean that you're seeing, I think nine countries have now have suspended or withdrawn funding from UNRWA. That's deeply deeply worrying. I'm glad to see that Ireland has made it clear that it won't withdraw funding. Norway has as well. But nine countries have so far decided they'll suspend funding. Given that we're facing famine-like situations now in Gaza, given that there is now no really operating medical system, given the problems that have been identified about getting any kind of humanitarian aid uh, into Gaza, like, what are we looking at here? on the basis of allegations against 12 individuals, 2.3 million people who are already in the most desperate circumstances imaginable, in truly horrific circumstances, are, are now going to be denied even the very meagre, appalling humanitarian trickle of aid that's going in. That's now going to happen off the back of all of this. I mean, we do need to get a sense of proportion around this. And I'm really glad to see that Ireland has committed to ongoing yeah. funding. OK, OK. And look, there is the, the, the other argument on that would be that if uh, you would agree that if Hamas has in some way infiltrated uh, UNRWA, which it has infiltrated a lot of, uh, of uh, organisations and institutions in, in Gaza, then that UNRWA's, is a, UNRWA's a UN deep concern. UNRWA is a UN institution. The fact that 12 members of its staff uh, yeah, are alleged made, to have yeah, been involved is very, 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 yeah. very serious and yeah. should be investigated and they yeah. should be prosecuted okay. if that's proven. OK, we'll take a break. Suzanne Lynch, Elaine Garrity, Ashley Maloney and Colin McGorman are staying with us. Brendan O'Connor on RTE Radio 1. Welcome back, Suzanne Lynch, Elaine Garrity, Ashley Maloney and Colin McGorman are still with us. Elaine Garrity, did you watch uh, Jurgen Klopp's plane on a flight tracker <laughs> when he was coming to manage Liverpool? Guilty as charged, Brendan, 2015. <laughs> I've never done it before, I've never done it since. <laughs> but a very good friend, the family were on high alert, said he's coming and I didn't actually know him, but I just got completely caught up with it and um, I'm in mourning now that the man is leaving. Yeah. <laughs> it's been an adventure. It's been fantastic few years for anybody who's a Liverpool fan. It's been up and what down. What was the magic the of him? Oh, where to begin? I mean, he's a real people person, you know. Um, apart from the fact he's a great tactician, a very good manager, leave all that aside. He just got, he got the club. He got Liverpool as a city. He got the people. You felt, I'd love to go for a pint with him. I'd love a hug, actually. He's famous for his hugs and a pint. And um, he's smart. He's funny. He's, he just lit up the premiership and begrudgingly, even my, you know, my enemies of friends who are supporters of Man U begrudgingly would say, yeah, good manager. And there's a lot of that coming out. Mm. over. But, you know, nobody died. The guy is going and he's going actually very Klopp like on his own terms. Yeah. And, announced and you picked it in the a middle piece, of the season. Yeah. You picked a piece in the Sunday Times. They're, yeah, they're going to do the money ball technique well, to pick the next Yeah, because play. you have to kind of leave the emotion aside. There'll be plenty of time for that um, at the cop, which they want to rename the Klopp, apparently. Um, and... <laughs> But, you know, all that aside, it's a, it's a, it's a multi-billion euro uh, business, as you know. And, and within Liverpool and how they have been doing things, just reading today, 
I mean, uh, the Fenway Sports Group who own it, Mike Gordon, will lead the process for the new manager, which he did for, for them as well. But like, if you look at it there, on their team, they have a guy called Will Spearman. He's Liverpool's director of research and uh, he also has a doctorate in particle physics from Harvard. So yeah, how you get the Klopp factor into all of that. But it is a series. It'll be about data. When Klopp left Dortmund his last season there in Germany before he came, like he was losing like bottom of the league. So that was still brought into the mix in terms of was the right fit. Difficult, you know, shoes to fall. But the fun, it's the fun factor. And, you know. Like, yeah, I don't know if the data yeah. will ever give us that. Or I, I think we still need to, we still need to go with our guts, don't we? Completely. Yeah. And especially with somewhere like Liverpool uh, 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 and the people and the club there, it's got to be the right fit. But uh, yeah, fun times. OK. Anyone else a Liverpool fan? No, move along. <laughs> Thank you. OK. <laughs> we, we, have a, we have a minute for dogs. So, uh, Elaine, you have picked this piece as well. Eight out of ten dogs enjoy TV just as much as we do, apparently. According to this, right, dog owners claiming <laughs> some sit and watch a whole movie actively <laughs> engaging with the content and reacting to the plot. Colm, you're a they dog person. Do. Do I, I have three dogs at home. Actually, I've got one dog at home who's confined at the moment because he's a really badly broken leg. And I swear to God, he you're sits probably up paying and a fortune for his he, uh, oh, medical don't start treatment. Me on that. Yeah. that was the last time I was in here. I had to rush him off to an orthopaedic surgeon immediately afterwards. So this is ridiculous. No, no, it's, it's not ridiculous. It. It the poor dog's done. leg was hanging off, Brendan, to be perfectly uh, blunt about it. So something had to be done. Oh, yeah. But right now, okay. right now, right now, he's 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 lying on the couch and absolutely perks up and sits up to watch whatever might be on the TV. And I thought you were going to say he's programs. listening here to his master's voice booming uh, over no, the radio. No, he'd, be, he'd be more interested now in what's happening on the TV. And they yeah. genuinely watch it. I mean, they I've do, seen them stop still yeah. and, and sit down and start to stare at the television screen when they've walked into the room. Well, 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 yourself I, I, I've, I've been doing it all morning, no problem. <laughs> <The dogs. laughs> uh, I have two Dogs Trust specials at home, uh, Bino and Sky, who are now watching potentially one of these top ten shows, The Chase, Fleabag, Be- Beagles About, uh, the, te- the Great British Bark Off, 8 Out of 10 Cats, or Have I Got Shoes For You. OK, oh there is absolutely no way of following that. We finish up. Suzanne Lynch, Associate Editor of Political Europe, Elaine Geraghty, MD of Ardmore and Troy Studios, Ashling Maloney, Political Correspondent with the Irish Daily Mail, and Colm O'Gorman, Human Rights Campaigner. Thank you all very much for an insightful and entertaining and lively hour there. And now we will go to the newsroom and Vivian Trainer.